Hi, I'm Desiree. Welcome to Mitre Happy Place. Thanks for joining me today for episode number nine. I'm so glad you could make it. Today I'm going to be doing what I normally do, covering a case, but I'm also going to be having an update for you guys about a previous case that I covered. I'm going to be having an update about Tiffany Lucas, which I did for episode number four, but I'm not going to be giving all of the details and getting in depth with it this time. So it's just going to be a brief overview. So if you haven't listened to episode number four yet about Tiffany Lucas, you can go there first to get a full detailed account of what is taking place then, and then come back here to get the updates to see what's happening now with the case. If you're not wanting the update and you just want to get into the full case that I have for you today, you can skip forward to about seven minutes right around there, and that's where the full case will start. Okay, so I'm going to start with the update. Brief overview. Tiffany Lucas was a 32-year-old mom who was arrested in relation to the deaths of her two sons, 9-year-old Jaden and 6-year-old Maurice. She was held in jail on a $2 million bond and was awaiting court last time I had talked about her. She's since gone to court, and the boys' family have spoken out a little bit more, so here is what's happened since that previous episode. Before I start talking about what happened at court, I'm going to talk about what the family was saying. Michelle Rice, who's Marisa's stepmom, talked about Tiffany, saying that what you saw on social media is not how things actually were. Most of the people that I know kind of do a similar thing, where what you see on social media is only the good things, the highlights... But that's not exactly what Michelle was talking about. Michelle meant that Tiffany was posting things to fit a specific narrative that she wanted everyone to see, almost as if she had a double life on social media. Michelle said, quote, Nobody knew of her drug issues. She never had a job. She never worked. Things like that. The boys were taken from her previously when they were smaller because of drugs, unquote. Michelle also said that when they would try to throw birthday parties or other events that they wanted Maurice to attend, Tiffany wouldn't allow it a lot of the time. She said that when they would show up to her house, Tiffany either wouldn't answer the door, or if she did, she would just say that she was not allowing Maurice to leave to go to that event. Michelle said that his family at his dad's house loved him. He had his own room there, his dad was there, and he even had a little brother there. And Tiffany apparently didn't want Maurice to have a relationship with his little brother, which I don't understand the logic in that. Wouldn't you want him to know his siblings? She said that whenever Tiffany did allow Maurice to go with them, that they would try to keep him with them as long as possible. Michelle said that Tiffany wouldn't let Maurice or Jaden have their Christmas presents either, sometimes for months. Michelle and Bobby Baker, who's Maurice's aunt, said that the boys were the sweetest, that they were very polite and happy, innocent children. She talked about how Maurice, who she called Little Reese, liked playing soccer and riding his bike. To me... In my opinion, the situation with Tiffany and Michelle and Maurice's dad kind of sounds like Tiffany was a bitter baby mama who was trying to make her son suffer by not allowing a normal relationship with his father and his father's new family. And it wasn't just Maurice who was getting this kind of treatment. Both families had called CPS. Not just Maurice's family, Jaden's other family also had. So there was something that was happening to the boys separately enough that both families felt they needed help. 
from Tiffany's social media posts about her loving the boys different and how they were her kings and how she did everything for them and she was changing her ways to right her wrongs and then everything since that has come out from the families. It sounds like she tried to have this single mom, super mom, I do it all on my own type persona online so that people would look at her and give her praise for being such a good mother and working so hard for her kids. Kind of sounds like the posts were just fishing for compliments for her. Aside from all of that, there was an issue during the boys' visitations. Bobby Baker says that during Maurice's viewing, they actually got Jaden's body. The Jefferson County coroner said that they're not the ones to blame for this. They said that it was Norton's Children's Hospital because the hospital is, quote-unquote, responsible for labeling and tagging descendants upon their arrival. Norton's Children's Hospital told Wave News that they were, quote, unaware this happened and that they're looking into it, unquote. That is beyond negligent. Like, this family's already dealing with so much trauma and now they're just adding to it. Bobby and Michelle believe that the best punishment for Tiffany is a death sentence. Because, as Bobby says, quote, her sitting in jail for the rest of her life is a cakewalk, unquote. Michelle said, quote, if it goes to trial, it's going to be a long process, unless she somehow takes a deal for life in prison, but we want the death penalty. That's what we want. She deserves to die. They were sweet little boys, and they didn't deserve it. She deserves the death penalty for this because there's no reason behind them not being able to be here to celebrate Christmas today with us and to go to school and live their life now, unquote. On December 11th, 2023, Tiffany was in court. Her plea was still not guilty to two counts of capital murder. She showed no emotion and she kept a flat stone face through the entire hearing. Bobby said it looked like she didn't have a care in the world. Bobby spoke to the court saying, quote, When all this is done and over, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old lost their life. They won't ever have the opportunity to finish elementary school, college, and be who they were supposed to be, unquote. Judge Rodney Barres kept Tiffany's bond at $2 million at the request of Commonwealth Attorney Bailey Taylor. Attorney Taylor said that she didn't want Tiffany's bond to go any lower than that $2 million that it was at because of the heinous nature of the offenses and a high bond of $2 million would assure that Tiffany wouldn't be able to get out back into the public. Tiffany was back in court for a status hearing on January 8th of this year. Bobby Baker and Michelle Rice were at this hearing just as they've been at every other one. Bobby actually travels from Georgia to be at every hearing. They said in the first hearing that they were going to be at everyone and see it through, and that's just what they're doing. Tiffany's next court date is on March 18th for the pre-trial, and that's when the actual trial date will be set. While she's waiting for that, she's still being held at the Bullitt County Detention Center. And based on the conviction that could come from this trial, her sentence could range anywhere from life in prison to the death penalty. And the death penalty is rare in Kentucky, but it is an option. Okay, so now that I've given you the update on Tiffany Lucas, I'm going to get into the full case that I have set for you guys today. Today's case is about a little old grandma who was murdered in her home, and no one knows what happened to her. Even her own family was left in the dark by police for the most part. This is the unsolved case of the murder of Maxine Bitomsky. Cue the trigger warning. Today's episode is intended for mature audiences only. The topic today contains real events that happen to real people. There will be graphic descriptions of sensitive subjects such as murder. Listener discretion is advised.
All right, so we're going back to January 15th of 1993 when Candace Cabaretta, who's Maxine's granddaughter, was over at her grandma's house to visit and talk about a project they were planning together. Maxine lived at 3 Colonial Road in a small town called Kittery in Maine. Candace and Maxine were planning to collaborate together on a family genealogy project. They visited for a while that night and talked about the project before Candace eventually left. Candace called her grandma that evening about 7.45 p.m., and Maxine told her that she was going to be getting ready to head to bed. Maxine and Candace ended their call, and then Maxine sat up to watch the Kittery Town Council meeting on TV, which is something she often did, and then she called a friend and talked on the phone with that friend until about midnight. The next morning, on January 16, 1993, the local paper, the Portsmouth Herald, was delivered to her house. When the delivery man dropped off her paper, he noticed that the window pane on a side door of the house had been smashed and that the door was slightly ajar. I guess that didn't really strike him as odd because he didn't call the police and just continued on with his day as usual. Later in the morning and throughout the afternoon, Maxine's neighbors noticed that the door was still open and the curtains were pulled closed all day long. Their neighbors thought it was strange enough to remember that her blinds were closed all day but not strange enough to go check out and see what's happening or to call the police for a welfare check. And I guess to the neighbors, having her side door open all day was also not strange. I mean, this is the middle of January, middle of winter in Maine. That means it had to have been pretty cold and pretty snowy. I mean, this lady had lived in her house, that specific house, for 40 years. So some of the neighbors had to know her pretty well, or at least know some of her routines, like having the curtains open. It's not like she just moved in and was new to the area, so nobody was aware of who she was. Anyways, whatever the case was, no one did anything, no one went to check on her, until her grandson came over. Her grandson, Christopher Matthews, came over to her house that day, and this poor man. He walked up to the house and noticed that the window on the side door, the same one everyone else had been noticing, was broken inward, and that the door was open. He then walked into the house and noticed there was broken furniture and signs of a struggle in the dining room. He continued walking through the house until he came to her bathroom at about 3.15 p.m. Once he got to the bathroom, he found his grandma Maxine dead in the bathtub. The bathtub was full of water and Maxine was nude. Police arrived and they started their investigation. They noticed there were no traces of blood in the house and they found some large footprints outside in the snow. These footprints weren't from the mailman that had been there or from her grandson. These prints, when they were followed, looked like they had been from someone who was running from her house to School Street towards Rogers Road, so kind of in a southeast direction. When I looked it up, these streets run parallel to each other, so the exact path that these footprints followed is kind of unclear to me, but School Street is just across a field from her house, and then Rogers is the main road in the area, so maybe he went from her house to School Street to Rogers. Not entirely sure. Because the shoe prints were big, police assumed that the suspect would be someone tall, and most likely a male. That doesn't really narrow down the suspect pool. You can't just bring in every tall man to question them based on that information. Police didn't notice anything missing from the house, so they didn't believe robbery to be the motive in this case. I looked up where Maxine's house is to get an idea of the area, and it seems that she lived about a half mile from the Kittery Police Department. And I'm not saying that living close to the police department makes an area any safer. I'm just saying that the killer had to have known that to get in and out without being seen, making any noise, or leaving any evidence in the house. There are neighbors surrounding her across the street, in the backyard, on both sides of the house. She wasn't the only house at the end of the street or a corner house where there's only one on the side of her or something like that. 
and the houses aren't super far apart either. It's a pretty standard suburb type lot. I had Google Maps measure the distance for me actually, and it says that the distance, depending on which houses I was measuring, is 50 to 100 feet. So even if the neighbors were sleeping next door, they still probably could have heard something. I don't understand how this killer didn't alert anyone, or if Maxine was making any noise, how it wasn't heard. Like, did nobody hear her screaming? Did she scream? I don't know. I mean, I guess the neighbors weren't super observant or cared to get involved because no one called in about the door being open all day. As for the crime scene, how were there signs of a struggle, but no signs of the killer? At least that had been released because we hardly know anything about this scene and what happened to Maxine. Was Maxine put in the tub with it full of water as a way to hide evidence, or was she already in the tub? Water would wash away a lot of the evidence and also would speed up decomposition, which could help with the evidence contamination. But I doubt she was in the tub if there looked to be a struggle in the dining room. So it seems she was put there after the struggle happened. After the investigation began, so did the secrecy. Maxine's family wasn't allowed into the home after the investigation started. I get the scene contamination issue being a concern, but police also basically withheld everything from the family. I mean, can you imagine your family member is dead, having been murdered, and the police won't tell you anything about what happened? I mean, I'd be fucking furious. Maxine's body was released to her family for the funeral, and they'd opted for an open casket, which, when they looked at her, they noticed that she had bruising on her. The police had told them so little they didn't know about this bruising. Maxine had bruising on her hands, her wrists, and the side of her face near her chin. After her funeral, she was buried at Maine's Veterans Memorial Cemetery with her husband, Albert. I'll talk a little bit more about the investigation in a second. I want to stop and talk about Maxine. Maxine Tori Batomsky was born on June 25, 1919, which made her 73 years old when she was murdered. She graduated high school from Cherryfield Academy in 1937, and after that she worked at Mary Jane Restaurant in Bar Harbor. Like I said, she had a husband named Albert, and the two had gotten married late May or early June of 1939. Albert Rudolph Potomsky graduated from Tripp Academy in 1937 and worked for Bond Jewelry Company as a clerk and a collecting agent before he joined the Navy. While he was in the Navy, he served in World War II. After he served in the war, he went back to Maine and he worked as a Portsmouth Naval Shipyard Fire Department chief. He was also a bales bondsman who worked with the police in Kittery, Maine, where they lived. From what I could find, Albert and Maxine had one daughter named Jelaine Ann. Together, they lived at this little white house on 3 Colonial Road for 30 years together before Albert passed in 1983. After he passed, Maxine made the decision to stay in the home because that's where she felt safest and the most comfortable. When I read that she stayed there because that's where she felt safe, it made my heart hurt for her. She lived in this house for 10 years after her husband passed and felt safe being alone there, only for someone to come into her home and violate her safety and take her life. Maxine was still as active as she could be. Her health had been on a decline, and she was on oxygen, but that didn't mean she stopped doing the things she loved. She loved going to rummage sales or garage sales, and was a member of the Kittery Historical Society. Maxine was described as being funny, sweet, independent, and feisty, yet cautious. Her family was her biggest priority over everything. She constantly had family coming in and out of her house, visiting with her, which is evident with her granddaughter being there the night before, and her grandson showing up the next day. 
and I'm, I'm happy to know that her family was around her so often because some people don't have anyone to visit them when they get older. So I'm glad that she had family to be around her and that she wasn't alone in her final days. The murder of Maxine really affected her family, obviously. Candace was scared to go out at night because who's to say the person wasn't still out there? Maybe even targeting their family specifically. On the first anniversary of her mom's death, on January 16, 1994, Jillian's car window was shot out with a pellet gun. She doesn't know who it was, so she couldn't be sure if it was the same person who had killed her mom. Very likely it could have been. I mean, it's pretty coincidental that it was on the same day, a year later, on the anniversary of her mom's death. Candace and Jillian would get prank hang-up calls, sometimes 30 times a day. Whoever was harassing these women, whether it was just some assholes in town who knew about the murders and wanted to think it was funny to harass the grieving family, because there's always going to be assholes, or maybe it was the killer. That's very possible, too. With no arrest, they had no real feeling of safety for years after the murder of Maxine. Alright, so now we're going to jump back into the investigation. Police Chief Edward Strong knew Albert, which in turn meant he probably knew Maxine, and so this case was personal to him. I didn't see why, specifically, but for some reason this was a state investigation rather than a local investigation. So even still, though, Chief Strong tried to be in the know as to what was going on and help out until his retirement in 2011. When Maxine's funeral was taking place, the police made sure to attend as well. They were there to look for anyone who might be suspicious, trying to find a suspect and a lead on this case. In April of 1994, there was a woman who was gardening behind Hillside Gardens on Rogers Road, which is the road that's kind of behind Maxine's. So this woman's out there gardening, and she finds a plastic Kmart bag under a bush. She takes a look inside of this and finds some rather interesting items. Inside of the bag were pajamas and a robe. In the robe's pocket, the woman found tissues, candy wrappers, and an inhaler. You might be like, well, what does this bag have to do with anything? Well, the side of the inhaler had Maxine's name printed on it, so that means that this bag was a bag of Maxine's items. This is most likely what she was wearing the night that she was killed. Candace said, quote, If the killer ran that way the night of the murder, then why did he drop the clothes off like that? Did something startle him? Did he see someone to make him throw the bag? Why didn't the bag get buried in the dirt or disposed of? Why didn't the killer go back for the evidence later? Unquote. And those are honestly the same questions I had when I read that information. If the killer had a bag of clothes that she was most likely wearing, then he would have made her take them off and took them with, probably because there was some sort of his evidence on there. I mean, why would he go through the trouble of putting them in a bag only to drop them off and leave them somewhere to be found later on? Did someone see them? And that's why they dropped the bag? If so, why hasn't the person who's seen them come forward to say that they saw someone running from the house with the bag? Even if in that moment you didn't think it was strange, once that information came out a year later, your memory still probably would have like, oh, hey, there was a strange guy running from a house carrying a bag that night. I should go tell the police about it. Also, if the bag was dropped off the night of the murder, whether it was an intentional thing or an accidental thing, why didn't the killer go back for it? Leaving them behind in hopes that they wouldn't get found doesn't match the amount of effort that happened inside of the house to make sure that there'd be no evidence to follow. Granted, they weren't found for over a year, so that leads me to think maybe they were planted there? 
if they'd been there the night of the murder, then how were they not disturbed at all in the previous year? How had the bag not been torn apart and scattered throughout the area? It was a plastic bag. It wasn't like a suitcase or something. So animals could have easily gotten into it. It was an area where people were gardening. The summer had come. The fall had come. The winter had come. Spring. Something could have torn this bag in that amount of time. Like I said, people gardened there. When they were planting the plants the year before, it could have been found then if it were there the night of the murder. Like, how is it only being found now over a year later? Now, like I said, the police kept a lot of information, a majority of the information, from the family and the public. So why give up this little bit of information? Is this where DNA came from that gave police a lead that I'll talk about in a little bit? There's tons of questions about this bag and what happened that night that I could go on forever. Candace would watch the news and hear about cases that were being closed and solved, and she sometimes said that she couldn't help but think, what about us? And I think that's a perfectly reasonable thought. Like, you could be happy for these other families, but also want to have your family get answers too. This case has been very hush-hush by police, and the family been kept out of the loop. She just wants some answers. There was talk that Maxine may have been sexually assaulted, but that wasn't ever confirmed. The cause of death has never been released, not even to the family, still today, 31 years later. Maxine's daughter, Jelaine, and her granddaughter, Candace, called and they called and they called to the Maine's Attorney General Office for years trying to get answers. After eight years of nothing in 2001, they were tired of it and they decided to take matters into their own hands, in a way. So, since police weren't releasing this information to the public, they went to the Portsmouth Herald and gave them whatever details they had so they could run it in an article, which is where a majority of the information that I'm giving you today came from. The family wasn't happy with how the case was being handled and they wanted answers. They didn't like how the state police were handling the case. They wanted the local Kittery police on it instead. They probably figured people in the local police would have known her and might take things more seriously or would have a smaller caseload that they could afford to put more attention to her case. Two Kittery police officers, Detective Steve Hamill and Sergeant Ronald Avery, spoke out in response to this article being written. Sergeant Avery said that his heart goes out to the family and he knows it's frustrating not having closure. Detective Hamill said that, quote, As hard as it is, we want them to be assured that with the Kittery police, this case remains open and will always be open until an arrest has been made, unquote. It seems like going to the press gave the police that are handling this case a little bit of pressure because they've since told Candace and Jelaine that they've gotten a hit on DNA, but there's been no public statement confirming this. There was talk that a warrant would be obtained for the said suspect that they had the DNA hit on, but nothing was released about that, and it's been 22 years since that supposed DNA hit. I wonder if that was kind of a more get-off-our-back type tip rather than an actual one. The last update I saw on Maxine's case was in 2022. Maine State Police said that there'd been progress in the case, but they're still just as confidential with their leads. There's a press briefing which Candace and Maxine's grandson, George White, both attended. At that briefing, there was talk of a suspect being identified by police, but no names were ever released, and there were no arrests that I've seen being made. So a similar, here's a little bit of info to get you off our back kind of thing, is what it sounds like to me. Lieutenant Scott Goslin said although they had a suspect, they were still looking for more information. He said, quote, Sometimes just because we have a strong suspect and a strong focus in an investigation, 
doesn't necessarily mean that we're ready to go to trial on this yet, but we certainly are at a point in this case where it's very strong and is getting stronger every day, unquote. He also spoke on the fact that DNA is advanced since the hit 22 years ago, and that they're hoping that can finally help them solve Maxine's case. So the suspect that they're looking at is someone that they actually interviewed way early on in this investigation. This was an original suspect that they had heavily scrutinized, but that's as much information as is out there still. Lieutenant Gosselin said that even though they have probable cause, doesn't make an entire case and there's still a lot more information needed to fill in the rest of the, the spots so that they can get a case that's beyond reasonable doubt. Lieutenant Gosselin said, quote, We ask that you do not wait for us to seek you out, especially if you have first-hand information, and do not assume that we know you have this information. If you're contemplating whether or not what you have is worth sharing, then we are speaking directly to you, unquote. To this day, today, January 16th, 2024, the official cause of death of Maxine has never been released. I read the police withholding this information in hopes that the suspect will, quote, unwittingly incriminate himself or herself by revealing details of the death not previously released to the public, unquote. Okay, so <laughs> I feel like withholding some information to the public can be helpful. But unless her family members are those suspects that the police were talking about in that briefing in 2022, why don't they let them know what happened to Maxine? If this is a suspect from way, way back when the investigation was originally beginning, what caused them to be a suspect again besides this DNA hit? Is there anything else? Keeping the information close to their chest so that the killer fucks up is kind of pointless at this stage of the game, especially if the suspect's someone that they've looked at before, because it's been 31 years and they haven't tripped up yet. If the person they think did it, did it, they're not going to fuck up now. Also, why haven't they come any further with this DNA hit? They haven't been able to tie this specific suspect that they have to this DNA? If it's that person, shouldn't they be trying to get a DNA sample from them so that they can match it to the DNA they have to rule them out and confirm whether they're the killer or not? They were talking about how DNA has come so far, and there's cases that are 40, 50 years old that are being solved. If you have the DNA hit here, what are you doing? Almost two years after Lieutenant Goslin says it was getting closer and closer every day, there's been no more public updates. Candace spoke about her grandmother, saying, quote, We loved her more than words can ever express, and it's hard to describe how much she meant to each of us, unquote. She also asked that the person responsible turns themselves in. Her grandson, George White, called the person responsible a monster, saying, quote, The individual who broke into her home that evening and murdered a 73-year-old defenseless woman is a monster and a coward and needs to be held accountable for what happened. If you have any information, please come forward. After 29 years, our grandmother deserves justice, unquote. Although they are happy with the advancements in the case, finally, they're still searching for answers, waiting for a call saying that there's been an arrest in their grandmother's case. There's a reward for any information that leads to an indictment or the arrest of a suspect in Maxine's case. I'm not entirely sure about the amount because back in 2010, the report said 20000 from Crimeline, which is also apparently now known as Seacoast Crime Stoppers. I tried looking up Crimeline Maine, and I didn't see one, but when I searched the phone number, Seacoast Crime Stoppers came up. Seacoast Crime Stoppers is an organization that was founded in 1983 and is run purely on donations. Then, in 2022, I saw articles showing a $10,000 reward from Seacoast Crime Stoppers. 
They said, quote, We offer our sincere condolences to the family and friends of Maxine Batomsky and are hoping that the $10,000 reward we are offering can help bring a resolution to the unsolved homicide investigation. Unquote. Now, with those conflicting amounts being from possibly the same organization, I would think that the newer reported $10,000 reward is the actual amount. If anyone has any information about Maxine Batomsky's murder, please contact one of the following sources. You can contact Seacoast Crime Stoppers at 207-439-1199. You can contact the Maine State Police at 207 207- 624-7076 or 800-228-0857. You can also contact the Kittery Police Department at 207-439-1638. So that's it. That's all I have for you today. That's the update on Tiffany Lucas and the case of Maxine Batomsky. You can find the podcast on social media at Dark Happy Pod. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you're listening now. You can go to the website, MyDarkHappyPlace.com, where you can find all this information in one place. And I also have a case request form on the website. So if you have a case that you want me to cover, go there, submit the form, and I'll be able to see it. I'll be here next week with another episode.